Uh, some of us, you know, in the, I think in the early 2000s, talked about globalism, but I think the, the COVID pandemic, um, especially in healthcare, for me really underscores why I think global healthcare is the next big thing. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the next big thing in health. I'm your co-host, Matt Isles. And I'm Laura Evans. This season of The Next Big Thing in Health is sponsored by Teladoc Health, partnering with health insurance providers to transform the care experience for their members. Visit teladochealth.com backslash AHIP-2021 to learn about its perspectives on the path forward for integrated virtual whole person care. Our guest today is Juliet K. Choi, president and CEO of the Asian and Pacific Islander American Health Forum, a nonprofit organization that influences policy, mobilizes communities, and strengthens programs and organizations to improve the health of Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders. Prior to her role, Juliet served in the Obama administration as the former chief of staff and senior advisor at two federal agencies, the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Health and Human Services. She also previously led disaster relief operations and strategic partnerships at the American Red Cross as a member of the disaster leadership team. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Matt. Really happy to be here. Great. Why don't we go ahead and jump right in? And, you know, I gave a very brief overview at the beginning, uh, but for our listeners who aren't uh, very aware, could you maybe talk about what the Asian and Pacific Islander American Health Forum is and what your organization does and focuses on? Sure. Thanks so much, Matt and Laura. Again, really great to be here and with all of your listeners. You know, in a nutshell, if you don't know us, I invite you to visit our website. We're at apiahf.org. We're the oldest and largest health justice organization uh, for the Asian American, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander communities across the country. And so in a nutshell, what that means is we have the humble privilege of serving as that health justice advocate for our communities when it comes to health equity. Um, stated another way, we work with our network of community partners across the country. We have over, uh, we have a network of over 100 partners in almost 50 states and jurisdictions where we're really fighting for health equity, building community power and community capacity. Juliet, let's talk about COVID-19. And, and I understand your organization has developed a comprehensive set of resources over the past year to help these communities access information about COVID treatments and vaccines. Um, let's talk about those resources and how they're helping the populations you serve. Sure. Uh, so if I can, you know, uh, we're here we are July 2021. And if I could ask us to imagine where we were, March, April, May of 2020, all of us, you, me, my friends, my family, we were all curious, what is COVID? What are the best public health practices? Um, the information, the guidance was literally, I thought, changing week to week. Uh, and we wanted to do what we could, not just as healthcare professionals and advocates, 
but just from a standpoint of taking care of our families, our neighbors, and communities. So with that backdrop, I ask and invite our audience to think about the diversity, the resiliency of the Asian American, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander communities. And if you can understand a significant uh, portion of our communities are immigrant families. And so what that translates into is when we're thinking about the scientific information about COVID and public health guidance, that's really tough information to explain in lay terms, I would say in English. But mm-hmm. can you imagine trying to explain all of those provisions in a way that's relevant both to your culture, um, but also in language? So as a result, what we've been working on for the last 15, 16, 17 months has been growing a network of our community partners to take the federal scientific information make that bite-sized digestible, both culturally in a relevant way, but also in language. Um, And to do that, I do have to share with you has been no small feat. I'm proud to share now that some of the key examples include, we built and grew um, what is our National Health Response Partnership which is a national network of over 25 national regional organizations that includes their respective networks of local partners as well. And with that network, we very, uh, we worked around the clock to make sure that we could make this information, again, available in language and in a way that's culturally relevant. I think if I can highlight a couple of recent examples, I would include, and I think maybe later today we'll talk a little bit about this. As the country has grappled with COVID, the country has also uh, grappled um, with this new modern chapter, historical chapter of racial reckoning. Um, And for the Asian American Pacific Islander community, as we have been dealing with the disparate impact of COVID, We've also been dealing with an incredible uh, consequential wave of anti-Asian violence. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, earlier this year, we created, um, you know, a a Know Your Rights toolkit on what hate crimes are and what hate incidences are and to make that available to our communities. Uh, And I wanted to create a gold standard and try to model what we want the rest of the country to do. We created that toolkit and made it available in 25 languages, 25 Asian, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander languages. The reason why this is so illustrative and critical is that for our communities, all of us, we've been trying to promote, encourage, educate our families and our neighbors to feel safe, understand the facts as to why getting a COVID vaccination is the best measure to take care of your family when it comes to COVID. And the reality we discovered is that while some of our family members had those COVID, uh, those precious COVID vaccination appointments, our families were shuttered in because of the fear of anti-Asian violence. And so that's an example of where we're dealing with a global pandemic, but it's important together with our community partners to understand 
where are our families and what kind of information do we need to make available? So, so um, how are you getting those messages out? Was it on social media? And, and I know it's continuing down down the line, but is it is it social media that you're using? Is it just a, a variety of different, you know, regular, you know, traditional media too? I, I The short answer is it's all of the above. It is all of mm-hmm. the above. Um, and we are learning, uh, you know, across the diversity of our communities. And I don't think it's unique to the AA and HPI communities, but also for communities of color and particularly immigrant communities. Social media is highly impactful. And for different communities, different channels of social media uh, are, are more effective. Mm-hmm. I would say the biggest thing is making sure that any information and messaging is delivered through trusted messengers and partners. Um, so people who look like you, people with whom you can relate to, your family physician, your faith leader, your family member, maybe it's your local elected official, And then through social media, it is making the information and writing available through translated copies, but also through interpreted uh, channels. Uh, And so, you know, we invite folks to visit our Facebook page and our Twitter channels because that's how we're able to promote the latest offerings that we have. That's such uh, incredible work that you're doing, uh, you know, both on the communication side and combating um, um, discrimination and Asian American violence. Uh, maybe we could just stick with that for a moment to understand, you know, with the devastating rise that we've seen across the country, what, what other solutions do you think we sh- need to be talking about as a country? I mean, it, it has just been uh, astounding to, to watch the impact um, over the past year. Um, you know, what conversations are we not having as a country about this? Yeah, I really appreciate that question, Matt. I mean, I think that's the first step, exactly the question that you asked. And for the listeners that are joining us, your place of employment, your place of worship, your community space, I would ask you to raise that question um, and elevate that question and that opportunity for dialogue because what that action does in and of itself is that it creates space, it invites a safe space for a lot of our members to step forward and actually reveal and disclose what's actually happening. Um, you know, I want to share a personal story and then highlight also another example of where we're also learning from all of these experiences. I, like you and, and some of our listeners, I'm based in Washington, D.C. I, I consider this my home, my adopted hometown now. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm minutes from the Capitol building. Um, and I have to say, in my like over a decade of living in Washington, D.C., It's only in the last few months that I've experienced uh, a handful of verbal assaults um, because of the color of my skin and what I look like. Um, And, you know, I'm I'm not a shy person. I I think I can speak up for myself. But it's in that moment when you experience that, it's traumatic. Um, And I know so many other uh, persons of color, both in our community, uh, but also in our BIPOC communities experience this. So I think creating that kind of space 
and having a sense of empathy. In terms of bolstering our efforts as an organization, um, we created, I'm very proud to announce this, um, a strategic partnership with the National Asian Pacific American Bar Association. It is the largest grassroots organization in almost 50 states. It's the country's largest organizations of AAPI lawyers and judges. Um, and through that partnership, we have, we're continuing to create um, opportunities for dialogue, but again, additional materials like know your rights. Um, so for example, bringing it back to COVID, we've also heard stories of the intersectionality of anti-Asian violence and the COVID vaccination experience like you and me, hopefully more of us and our friends, we've, we've had the opportunity to get our COVID vaccination. But there are so many individuals when they step up to get their COVID vaccination, perhaps because of the language barrier, they're asked to produce identification and proof of insurance. And you and I know both, that is not a requirement in order to receive your COVID vaccination. And so we are creating these materials of know your rights um, and know your facts. Um, and those are the uh, examples of you know, strategic partnerships um, and these kinds of conversations also with AHIP, I think helps us to bolster these kinds of discussions and increase and enhance awareness uh, for, for all the communities we're trying to serve collectively. So Juliet, you know, one thing that this pandemic has done is it's really highlighted major gaps that we have in our digital divide. Are there any programs or initiatives that your organization is, is implementing or has already put in place to help expand broadband and to, to narrow that gap? Yeah, I love that question, Laura. I wish I could say the health form and our health justice mission I wish I could say we've created our own 5G network of advocates, <laughs> right? Um, so, but I, I think what's core to your issue with regard to broadband, I tie it to the issue of um, with the uh, innovation of technology and the opportunity to share more information rapidly. Some of these issues and opportunities, I firmly believe, uh, face uh, are cycles of opportunities and challenges. Um, and when it comes to broadband and we think about the COVID context, the innovation in healthcare, the barriers of language um, and access to information because of language, one of my concerns is that the digital divide is also amplifying the literacy divide. And when you combine the two, when there are crisis situations like a global pandemic, where there is an absolute sense of urgency to get accurate and timely information out to our communities. My concern is that while broadband and uh, digital access creates opportunities, we need to be top of mind of the underserved and the unmet needs of communities. Now, the good news story is some of the conversations the Health Forum has engaged in, we've brought these issues to light together with our network of partners to the Biden administration, whether it's the White House or HHS or the Department of Justice. 
because there is an element if you don't take into account language that is also a form of discrimination or national origin discrimination. Mm -hmm. um, now, the other opportunities, um, and this is, you know, uh, where crisis, I do think, uh, can also bring out the best in us, is that the corporate sector has also very much stepped up. Um, there are corporate corporations and corporate partners, for example, like Verizon, um, that has made a really bold statement and investment in the AA and HPI communities, recognizing that there's opportunity to overcome that digital divide. But when I was uh, joking or chuckling about our 5G health forum network, um, you know, there's nothing like, there's nothing that's going to replace that network to network that trusted messenger, partner to partner, outreach and communication. So I think going forward there, again, there are opportunities through innovation, uh, but it is really important to acknowledge the value and the need for greater investments in community partnerships going forward. Mm -hmm. Teladoc Health, the leader in virtual care since 2002, has built the only scalable platform for integrated whole person solutions. A partnership with Teladoc Health helps ensure that health insurance providers, employers, hospitals, and health systems are prepared for the future by supporting the growth of virtual care. To learn about Teladoc Health's perspectives on innovating to ensure access to integrated, virtual, whole person care for everyone, visit teledochealth.com backslash AHIP-2021. Building on that theme of, you know, opportunities, we know one of our biggest gaps that we face right now is in terms of collecting better data to help different populations, especially underserved underrepresented uh, communities. And uh, I, I also know that you were recently appointed to uh, an RWJF, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation panel, a great organization. What kind of data do you think would be helpful for us to collect and how would it be used to improve health uh, in these communities? Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, if I had the perfect answer to that, we, uh, <laughs> we, we would be working on a whole lot of different things. So I, I'm so glad you mentioned Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, um, you know, their leadership and innovation and convening different leaders um, for its newly formed National Commission to transform public health data systems. Um, I, I'm just one of many uh, just incredible commissioners on that entity. Um, you know, in terms of type of data we need to connect, uh, connect, collect, identify, I like to think about a framework, if I can put it this way and articulate it this way is, how do we take our public health data, our public health data system and really democratize our data. Um, so for me, I think a critical question is what type of data do we need to collect, but why do we wanna collect the data and what kind of reform do we want to envision and commit to going forward? And so that's why, you know, through some of my other really good friends and colleagues, 
like the National Urban League and Mark Mariel, we recently uh, were are talking about um, in an article about the real need to democratize data. Um, so if you take that kind of lens, I think it opens up the possibility. Sure, absolutely. The classical data elements we need more of. I want to see more uh, sub-ethnic disaggregated data. Um, I live in D.C. now, but if I lived in the state of Florida, you know what? Uh, and a lot of the public health data reporting, I would only show up as other. And I'd like to believe that myself and my community, we count a little bit more than just other. Um, the ability to capture language and disability. But again, if we think about democratizing data for a better, a, a better well-being and a holistic society, I think this invites us to think about um, how do we counter this notion that, you know what, your zip code is a big predictor of how well and healthy you are or not. Um, and so if we think about data holistically, we can think about housing and education and employment and healthcare and put that together uh, for, uh, for a vision of leveraging a public health data system that drives us for a more holistic, well, uh, well a healthier society. Um, the last footnote, you know, I, like you, I, I like to read different articles and publications. You know, Forbes recently continued its latest publication. Did you know that there's a world index on happiness? <laughs> I uh, did. Yes. Right? I love yeah. looking at it. Yes. That one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's an index created by the United Nations. So, you know, there are different channels to read about that. But I invite us to think about, you know, democratizing data, uh, not just for identifying the gaps, but for producing a healthier, happier society. Um, in that United Nations driven index, you know, Finland came out number one for the fourth year in a row. Mm -hmm. And I've got a slightly competitive side to me. <laughs> <laughs> US, the U.S. is ranked in the top 20, but I'd like to see us hit the top 10 sometime <laughs> soon. So that's a different way of how I like to think about what do we want to do with our public health data system? Yeah, the U.S. is number 18. <laughs> that's yeah. much too low. I'm competitive like you, Juliet. We need to get up there. <laughs> yeah, let's, let, let's increase that rating. Yeah. With you. Um, I do want to talk briefly about your current role with the Asian and Pacific Islander American Health uh, Forum. Um, and Matt explained your bio off the top that you are with the Red Cross, you are with HHS, you have a law degree. So I'm curious about how all of that is contributing to what you are doing now um, with your organization. Yeah, absolutely. You know what? It's this is really an homage to my parents, I have to say. Um, I, I'm, I'm the proud daughter of Korean immigrants. My folks came to the U.S. in the 60s. Um, and as a kid, I just remember, uh, for those of us that can remember, my dad used to record Walter Cronkite and the CBS News. Yeah. Um, and he would play it back, and I would ask him, why are you doing that? And he said that, 
because of his accent, he wanted to work on his accent. Oh, wow. Um, because, you know, sometimes, you know, folks understood him and took him at face value. And other times he felt, you know, a little bit removed because of that accent. Hmm. Uh, now, my mother, on the other hand, had highlighted that, you know, how lucky am I to be uh, an American girl, an American kid? And have the opportunity to bridge a couple of cultures and a couple of languages. Um, and that that's something special. And somewhere, somehow, uh, I need to find a way to help communities and serve the public. So I will say uh, that sort of a wind up to say, uh, over the last few years, I witnessed, and you had highlighted my background with the Red Cross and as a civil rights lawyer and having been at Health and Human Services and um, actually U.S. Citizen Immigration Services at Homeland during the Obama days. Over the last many years, I just had this uh, compelling, uh, this, this compelling uh vibration in my gut that uh, over the last handful of years, um, our immigrant families really faced a really tough anti-immigrant agenda. Um, and there have been plenty of reports, whether it's the Commonwealth Fund or Kaiser Family Foundation that highlighted that because of immigration status and language and cultural barriers, uh, our communities were not accessing the healthcare that they needed. And fortuitously, um, you know, English is my first language. I feel like I can bridge different cultures. I can bridge federal government to community, to private sector. And I just had a real hankering for really wanting to come back to the nonprofit space uh, to uplift uh, really the resiliency of immigrant communities. And fortuitously, um, you know, I was presented with the opportunity to join the Health Forum, an organization that I've actually worked with over, you know, over the last decade. Um, so it's one of those, you know, sometimes you wish for something uh, <laughs> and, and sometimes it happens. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm learning a lot in this position. Uh, you know, there are a lot of lessons learned, uh, but each day, you know, I'm just really, really inspired um, by our partners, our communities, um, you know, and being able to share a dialogue like this with you and, and, and your audience. Well, it, it really brings all, all of the corners of your background together quite beautifully. It, it does. And, and just because we have you, yeah, I have to ask this question, Juliet, and given the disaster relief operations you led, at the American Red Cross, and you mentioned lessons learned, and anything that we need to take away uh, from what you learned at the American Red Cross and apply it to COVID? Yeah, absolutely. COVID, you know, pandemics, crisis scenarios. Uh, I, I, I'll say a, a few things. You, you got to have a North Star. Uh, right, you know, in terms of our values and our principles. Um, and that's something, uh, a really, really valuable lesson that I got to see play out in so many different ways when I was at the Red Cross. 
Um, and having that North Star is really, for me, is meeting the humanitarian needs um, and seeking out those tougher challenges and issues to address um, and making sure the most vulnerable are not left behind. Um, two, when there's a crisis or a disaster, believe it or not, there are a lot of elements that are predictable because crisis happens again and again. So when we've got the time or the readiness, if you will, let's figure out what those predictable elements are, plan for it so that we have greater bandwidth to deal with the unexpected. Um, three, the power and the glory of partnerships to meet unmet needs um, and to sustain one another is incredibly uh, critical. Um, and it's, it's a hypercritical to make sure that when we establish those partnerships, we grow, nurture, and sustain them. Four, uh, you know, every crisis, uh, as bad as it can be, there is always opportunity for innovation. And I do think the best, the brightest uh, people uh, show up expectedly, unexpectedly for innovation. We should celebrate that. And last but not least, uh, you know, I really believe in that public servant uh, model of leadership. Um, and so in crisis, it's important to, with your colleagues to uh, embrace uh, that sense of humility. Um, and as you're doing uh, the humanitarian work, celebrate the joy in the work that you're doing. Thank you for spending so much time with us here today, but we always have one last question that we have to ask of all our guests. So here it is. What do you think is the next big thing in healthcare? Yeah, uh, I love your question. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I know some of your uh, our, your former guests, uh, you know, I, I, I love their responses. <laughs> You know what, for today, in this moment in time in, in July, I, I'm going to go with uh, global health care. Uh, let me say that's global, G-L-O-C-A-L, right? Uh, some of us, you know, in the, I think in the early 2000s, talked about globalism. But I think the, the COVID pandemic, um, especially in healthcare, for me, really, underscores why I think global healthcare is the next big thing. You think about the, the need to be able to access care wherever you are. Um, it's care for yourself, but if you're able to access care, that means you have a higher chance of being able to take care of your neighbors and your communities. Um, and something like a COVID pandemic or any pandemic does not uh, identify with geographic uh, boundaries. Uh, and in order for us to take care of one another and beat this pandemic, all efforts are local, but there's an incredible global impact here. Uh, so I think the opportunities, the challenges, the solutions, the innovations, uh, I'm just going to I'm just going to round it out and say, today I'm going with local healthcare, <laughs> Matt and Laura. I like it. <laughs> it works. Okay. It works and it makes sense. Love it. Thank you so much for both your time, but all of the work that you've been doing and all of your service throughout the years. Thank you so much for being with us today.
Thank you, Juliet. A pleasure to speak with you. You too. Thanks so much, Laura. Thanks, Matt. Recognizing the critical role that virtual care plays in the healthcare delivery system, Teladoc Health helps health insurance providers coordinate and deliver care for all members, including their highest risk populations, by providing a front door to care. From chronic condition management to mental health to primary care, Teladoc Health personalizes and integrates whole person care for members. Visit teledochealth.com backslash AHIP-2021 to download our brochure and learn how virtual care is delivering value as the preferred entry point to health.